Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Kroll & Mooring. We're your co-hosts, Mona Lombardo and Jason Crawford, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Today, we're joined by special guest, Scott Oswald. Scott is the managing principal of the Employment Law Group and the chair of the Federal Bar Association's KETAM section. Scott has extensive experience litigating KETAM cases on behalf of relators, and he's a frequent writer and speaker on whistleblower issues. We should note that the views expressed on the podcast are the views of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kroll and Mooring. That said, most of our guests on the podcast have discussed FCA developments from the perspective of the defense bar, and so we thought the listening audience would appreciate hearing from the other side, and we greatly appreciate Scott taking the time to talk with us today. Welcome to the show, Scott. Uh, Mana, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here with you and Jason. Thanks, Scott. We'd like to hear more about your process for selecting cases and your process for getting the government interested in intervening. To kick things off, can you tell our audience a little bit about the sort of cases that the Employment Law Group handles? So most of our clients come to us for employment matters. I've represented whistleblowers in the financial sector, lawyers who are whistleblowers, individuals who are fiduciaries who are whistleblowers in the medical and hospital field. And what's happening is the person is coming to us because generally they have discovered some kind of wrongdoing at their workplace and they want to know what to do with it. What sort of case assessment do you perform when a potential client reaches out? So what we do at the outset is we want to kind of get a sense of the procedural posture of what that person knows. So the first thing we do is we want to find out whether or not there's been any kind of internal disclosure first. And then what we talk to them about is whether they should disclose the information and how. What sort of vetting do you and your staff do to make sure that someone's motives are pure and that if they're telling the truth, they're giving you the whole truth and not holding anything back? Well, motives matter, for sure. I think they matter. You talk to, I've talked to lots of U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys across the country, and they'll tell you that one of the things that they ask is, they look for us, you know, what's the motive of the whistleblower? You know, from our perspective, I simply want to know that the individual has come to know this information, the normal course of the individual's work, and that they have a genuine concern about whether or not it potentially constitutes a false claim. And if so, then, you know, to make that internal disclosure. So what sort of factors do you consider when making the decision about where to file? I want to know that if we file it in a particular jurisdiction, that I've got a prosecutor who wants the case, who feels strongly about, you know, the legal theory that we are putting forward, feels good about the facts, has maybe an expertise in that case. They've handled that kind of case before, for example, that they have the resources that are necessary. And what makes a particular U.S. Attorney's Office attractive to Relators Council? As many of our listeners know, Mana, the um, U.S. Attorney's Offices around the country, as some have affirmative civil enforcement groups where you have assistant U.S. Attorneys who only handle affirmative cases. And then there are others where assistant U.S. Attorneys handle defensive cases as well. That's an important factor that we use, whether they have internal resources. Some offices have auditors, as an example. They have their own investigators. They have their own CPAs to review documents. 
we want to know these things up front. And I also want to know, is that office going to devote the necessary resources to that case so that we feel as if that case is going to get the kind of attention that it deserves? So these are all things that we're thinking about at the outset of a case. And we use, we team up with lawyers who have some knowledge of, of how that office works. We don't have an established relationship to help us and guide us. You've mentioned what you look for in a case that you might want to bring, but what sort of red flags might lead you to pass on a case? If someone is substantially involved in the underlying wrongdoing, some courts have described it as someone who is a planner or initiator of the fraud, as an example, for sure. But under kind of the newest guidance from the department, both Sally Yates' memo from September of 2015 and then some guidance recently, the department looks at individuals who've been involved substantially kind of differently and, shall we say, less favorably than those who are not substantially involved. In terms of the factors you consider, how significant was the Supreme Court's ruling in Escobar? We've talked about it a lot on the podcast. How does that weigh in your decision-making as to whether to take a case and whether you think you can get an AUSA interested in it? Now we do have a, shall we say, a more exacting standard for materiality. And I guess why I was surprised, because Materiality is right in the statute. I mean, that's part of why we had the amendments in 2009 in FARA was to make it very clear what materiality meant. And it's reasonably, I think, generous standard for whistleblowers and for the government under the False Claims Act. But now, I think in the wake of Escobar, courts have wrongly, in my opinion, but tightened that up significantly. From the relator's perspective, are there areas that haven't been affected by Escobar? First, in kickback cases. I think kickback cases, the standard for materiality remains the same. And if you've got kickbacks, courts have generally said, look, this is a violation of, of a criminal statute. So, of course, it's material mm -hmm. under the circumstances. Fraudulent inducement claims, especially in the procurement area, there you've got actual fraud. It, it goes to the benefit of the bargain. It has to be material. So those are two examples for sure where, where I think that the standard for materiality has not, not changed. I think it's also just important, from, at least from our perspective, from the relator side, that this notion that somehow it creates a presumption where the government pays claims over a period of time, that that somehow means that the violation is not material. The court did not talk about it in terms of a presumption at all. Yes, it's uh, important evidence. But it is not a, and maybe, as the court said, strong evidence, but not a uh, presumption. So, Scott, I'm curious to know, in your experience, how has Escobar changed the way that the government evaluates cases? I think in two important ways. The first is that if the government feels as if they do not have agency support, the government is likely not to intervene in that case. That was not always the necessary result. There were U.S. attorneys who said, look, I mean, if even if there is agency resistance, you know, maybe it's because they're embarrassed. Maybe it's because you've got a contracting officer that's got egg on his face. And, you know, that's why they're not supportive of the claims. We're still going to proceed. I think that's much less the case now. So 
that's the first way I think really it has changed. And the second is in procurement cases where there might be some tacit approval by a contracting officer in particular about the underlying conduct. So how do you navigate the post-Escobar landscape as Relators Council? I will present a case to a U.S. attorney, U.S. Attorney's Office, before we actually file in, in many of our cases. And one of the things that they'll want to do is talk to the contracting officer in advance to determine whether or not there might be emails or other kinds of communications mm-hmm. that that contracting officer may know of, which would cast doubt on the fact that this was, was material to the agency's view. I think it's also had a major impact at the declination stage. Uh, I think maybe kind of where the new battleground is, you were seeing briefs now filed and supportive motions to dismiss in which defendants are saying, hey, look, I mean, the government declined. So of course, this is not material because otherwise they would have intervened in the case. So that's really interesting in terms of the practical effect and how it has impacted your considerations in bringing cases. Sticking with the practical effects, tell us a little bit more about some of the considerations for Relators Council when a potential relator is still employed by the company that they're blowing the whistle on. As you mentioned, that's your focus area for your cases. So specifically, what are the risks to both the relator and the company if the relator engages in self-discovery? Well, I think what you're talking about is the fact that the relator might have documents or, you know, other information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first off, I will tell you that I think it's important for most assistant United States attorneys that employees, certainly internal whistleblowers, have documents. It supports their credibility and can be the kind of smoking gun evidence that those assistant U.S. attorneys want and they need in order to proceed with the case. So at the Employment Law Group, I mean, I encourage our clients to provide us with information, but there are three important kind of caveats. And the first is that I want to make sure that the information itself is something that came to my client I mean, in the ordinary course of the client's job duties. So, you know, 20 years ago, before we had the internet, the admonition that we might give our clients is, hey, don't break into the filing cabinet that you don't have a key to and gather documents. Now it's, you know, don't access a drive that you don't have access to in the normal course of your job duties. So that's number one. Number two is that we want only non-privileged information. And what I mean by that is attorney-client privilege. That's absolutely verboten, and the Department of Justice doesn't want it. We don't want it. And then finally, we want only information that truly is relevant to the underlying claims. So I don't want nine hard drives. I don't even want one hard drive of the information. I want just that information that's relevant to the matter. Well, we are close to the end of our time, but as Mana mentioned in her introduction, Scott is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's KETAM section, and he's been busy planning a two-day conference that the section will be hosting on February 28th and March 1st. Scott, do you want to tell the audience more about the event and where they can register to attend? Yeah, well, so 
Uh, we're really excited about our event this year. It is here in Washington on the 28th of February and on March 1st. This is our second annual conference, Jason. This year, we are really privileged to have, first off, two terrific co-chairs of our annual conference, Megan Jeske at Holland and Knight and Assistant U.S. Attorney for D.C., Daryl Valdez. And they have put together an absolutely fabulous program of, on two days. And I'll just maybe mention a couple highlights. First, we've got keynote speeches from Jody Hunt, who is the Assistant Attorney General of the United States for the Civil Division. This will be his first opportunity to outline his priorities in his position. So we're eagerly anticipating his speech. And then Glenn Fine, who is Acting Inspector General of the Department of Defense. He is going to talk about his priorities at the Defense Department. And then this is really a rare chance to also hear from Eileen Zimmer. And I suspect some of our listeners know who Eileen is. She is the ability to pay guru at Maine Justice. So anytime in a case that is a joint or monitor case, any ability to pay settlement has to go through Eileen to pass muster with the Department of Justice. And I will be completely transparent with you. For years, I have wanted to know, right, what was like the magic formula that Eileen uses. And so we're going to hear from Eileen, and she's going to be very candid with us about what the Department of Justice looks for in their ability to pay analysis. And then we have deep dive panels on topics such as statistical sampling, in the valuation of False Claims Act cases, in how determinations of medical necessity are affecting our cases. And this really is an opportunity to hear from not only those on the relator side and on the defense side, but also assistant U.S. attorneys. So please register. We'd love to have you for the two-day conference. You can find the registration link at fedbar.org, KETAM section, KETAM 19. And uh, you can register right there for the conference to occur on February 28th and on March 1st here in Washington. We look forward to seeing you. Thank you for talking with us today, Scott. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Well, that's all for this episode. We want to thank Scott for joining us today and sharing his perspective on the unique issues that arise in FCA matters that are brought by whistleblowers. If you have any questions, I can be reached at 213-443-5563 and Jason at 202-624-2562. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.